Well, good morning. If you're joining us online, uh, thank you for joining us online. Um, glad you're here. So many of you have had this experience either as a little child or a parent or grandparent. There's a, it's at night. There's a storm outside. It's thunder. It's lightning. And the little kid does what? Gets out of bed and goes through anything to get in bed with mom and dad or grandma and grandpa, right? It's not enough that they're in the next room over. No, 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 no. They have to be with them physically. And only when they get there physically are they at peace. Then everything's fine. Everything's good. But wait, 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 wait. It, it's still storming outside. The thunder still happened. The lightning that was scaring them. But, but now it's not a deal. Why is that? Well, they're physically in proximity with that person they think can protect them. I share that thought because as much as those little children might have confidence, we, that much more, can have confidence in times of fear. And I want to I tease that out a little bit today in our passage. So if you've got a Bible, if you'd open it to 1 Samuel 19, we're going to go through this passage all the way through, whole chapter, wrestling this question, why should we be confident in the midst of fear? Why should we be confident in the midst of fear? If you haven't been with us, we're in a series called Reliant. It's really highlighting our need to be relying on God before anyone or anything else. Uh, it's the story of First and Second Samuel, the account, and that is really Israel's transition from a loose federation of states to a monarchy. King. And it wasn't great circumstances that brought this about. God brought the people into the promised land. They weren't faithful to him, and as such, they kept dealing with raiders, people who would occupy them. And the people thought, you know what we need? We need a king. Like all the other nations, we need a king. And God said, you know, I, for a lot of reasons, I think that's a bad idea. But that I don't care. I want a king anyway. And God said to the prophets, Samuel, go ahead. You give them what they want. They will learn the king they ultimately need is me. So the first king was anointed, he was tall, he was handsome, and they thought, this is our man. And the wording was very, very clear to Saul, that first king, you're a prince, you're a ruler, specifically didn't use the word king to suggest that your, your kingship will not be one of total autonomy, but you'll rule under my authority. Saul didn't get that memo. Uh, two different times, he flat out disobeyed God, and when confronted by the prophet Samuel, he, he either rationalized or, or blamed, and at some point God said, I'm moving on. And he anointed the second king, and his name is David. David did kind of some astounding things. There was a Philistine champion named Goliath, and everybody was afraid to step up, including Saul, and David dropped him with a, with a stone. And all of a sudden, David's renown, David's reputation began to grow, and, and Saul is threatened. And we're living in messy times right now. Because we've got a king who's still in control, and we've got a king who's been anointed. We're wondering how that's going to play out. Well, that's where we are. 1 Samuel 19, verse 1 says, Now Saul told Jonathan his son and all his servants to put David to death. So now there's no denying it. What was kind of clandestine under things, Saul says, Hey, I, I want everybody on board. I need David dead. Why? Because David's threatening him. But Jonathan, Saul's son, greatly delighted in David. Now, I want to stop here. How many of you 
grew up in a conflicted family. Any of you had that? A conflicted family? A little conflict? Disagreement in families? Okay. The rest of you are lying. Okay. <laughs> so here's what we got. We got dad who wants David dead. We got a son and daughter who ain't buying it. They're more committed to David than they are Saul. Verse 2, so Jonathan told David, saying, Saul, my father, is seeking to put you to death. Now, therefore, please be on guard in the morning and stay in a secret place and hide yourself. I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are, and I will speak with my father about you. If I find out anything, then I will tell you. Hey, hey, I'm going to do a little advocating for you here. Uh, you go hide, and I'll try and get back to you. This is before text. I can't send you a text message, but I'll... I'll find you and I'll get in touch with you. So, verse 3 and 4 says, I will, uh, verse 4 and 5 says, Then Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Do not let the king sin against his servant David, since he has not sinned against you. And oh, by the way, and since his deeds have been very beneficial to you. Dad, it'd be a good idea to keep David alive. Because David's doing some things that will help you. Like what? Well, verse 5. For he took his life in his hands and struck the Philistine. Talking about the Philistine champion, Goliath, who was intimidating the nations. And the Lord brought about a great deliverance for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by putting David to death without a cause? David is taking on the Philistines and winning. And the Philistines are Israel's problem. They keep occupying them. They've got greater numbers than Israel. They've got better weapons. But something about God's hand on David and David's valor, he's winning. So that's good. That's good. If we can take out the Philistines, that's good. That's good for you. That's good for the nation. You look good in this. Wow. Verse 6, Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan, and Saul vowed, as the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. Then Jonathan called David, and Jonathan told all these, things, these words, and Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was brought in his presence as formerly. So, so David's now back in Saul's quarters. And what originally brought him there was Saul because he had lost God's favor, had a sense of foreboding and would get very melancholy, had mood disorder, and David would play his harp, and Saul would chill out. Verse 8, when there was war again, David went out and fought with the Philistines and defeated them with a great slaughter. So they fled before him. That, that's good for Saul. That's good for Israel. The Philistines being taken out, that's a good thing. Now, there was an evil spirit from the Lord on Saul. Somebody asked me today, and we've talked about it before. What is this evil spirit? God can't bring evil. What's this about? Here's what I think. God doesn't bring evil. But I think it is the sense of God taking his spirit from God, when he, uh, from Saul, when he had decided to move on. And Saul is left with this sense of foreboding, this melancholy. This isn't going to finish well. And he gets these mood swings. There was an evil spirit from the Lord on Saul as he was sitting in his house with his spear in his hand. And David was playing the harp. Why? To soothe him with his hand. Saul tried again to pin David to the wall with the spear, but he slipped away out of Saul's presence so that the spear 
so that he stuck the spear into the wall and David fled and escaped that night. I'm trying to help you out here. And what do you do? You take your spear and... Yeah, that, that makes me think you don't like me when you do that. Spear stuck in the wall. I'm out. David's thinking, I'm not buying this vow that you're going to preserve my life. Saul is capable of great swings in perspective and mood. Then Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him in order to put him to death in the morning. But Michael, David's wife's second child of Saul's that is more loyal to David than she is to Saul. But Michael, David's wife, told him, saying, if you do not save your life tonight, tomorrow you will be put to death. So Michael let David down through a window and he went out and fled and escaped. Verse 13, Michael took the household idol. Whoa, 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 whoa there, pastor. Did you just read household idol? Yep, I did. We'll come back to that, but how do you explain that one? Imperfect faith. Now, nobody in this church has imperfect faith, but we know people in other churches who have imperfect faith, right? That's not the way it should be, but that's the way it is. They are depending on something, someone other than God. We'll develop this a little bit more after we finish the next few verses. Michael took the household idol and laid it on the bed and put a quilt on, of goat's hair at its head and covered it with clothes. When Saul sent messengers to take David, she said, he is sick. Now, that's a lie. We got deception and lying. Then Saul sent messengers to see David saying, bring him up to me on his bed that I may put him to death. Well, I'm going to put him to death while he's sick. When the messengers entered, behold, the household idol was on the bed with the quilt of goat's hair at its head. So Saul said to Michael, why have you deceived me like this and let my enemy go so that he has escaped? And Michael said to Saul, he said to me, let me go. Why should I be put, put you to death? The insinuation there from Michael is that Saul threatened her. I don't think that's the case. Otherwise, why would she try and help David escape? But either David's abusive or I think more likely Michael is lying to her father. Because if Saul senses that she's loyal to David, he'll put her to death. Conflicted family. But let, let's talk about messy faith. We've got an idol. Remember, the future king living with an idol. Why would you have an idol? Because you're counting on God, but, but that idol is doing something for you. And we're far more sophisticated. We don't, we don't carve idols out. But we count on God plus something else. That's idolatry. God and my job will keep me secure. God and my spouse will keep me my need for intimacy. God and my football team, my hobby will keep me joy-filled. And, and, and we've got idolatry. And because faith is off, we've got a, a conflicted family, a, a, a daughter who's lying to her father because she's probably afraid to kill him. She's, we've got a woman who's involved in deception. We've got all kinds of things. Listen, if, if God had consulted with me and, and had me be the editor, I would get all this out. It's, it's a bad look, isn't it, for God's people? It's a bad look. But I think God has it in here because it's reality. Here's, here's what you and I got in common. We're a mess. 
you know, we, we got this God thing going and we profess these truths, and, but, but, but we're in process and we're flawed and because we're involved in idolatry, we're involved in deception and we're involved in shading the truth and we're involved in, and it's reality. So why does that matter? You might meet somebody here at North Point that is not fully Christian. Yeah, you, you will. Because we're in, and I expect church to be perfect. Man, I hate to let you down. Man, I really hate to let you down. It's filled with imperfect people in process. I think God's got that in here because that's reality. The one who will take Israel to its heights is living with a household idol. Verse 18, David's still in a rut. Now David fled and escaped and came to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. And he and Samuel went out and stayed in Naoth. Samuel's the prophet, so David wants to hear. What does God have to say? Naoth is, is shepherd's huts. So that's a place that they're trying to get to kind of an obscure place out of the way. The only trouble is, verse 19, Saul has got, to, he's got sources. Verse 19, it was told, 19, it was told Saul saying, behold, David is at Naoth in Ramah. Then Saul sent messengers to David. But when they saw the company of the prophets prophesying with Saul standing and presiding over them, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul, and they also prophesied. They were supposed to go capture David. The Spirit of God comes on them, and they start prophesying. It's, when it was told to Saul, he sent other messengers. This is the second group. And they also prophesied. So Saul sent messengers again the third time. What did they do? They also prophesied. Then he himself went to Ramah and came as far as the large well that is in Seku. And he asked where's Samuel and David? And someone said, behold, they are at Naoth in Ramah. So here's the deal. Boy, if you can't, if you want a job done right, you do it yourself, right? I mean, he sent three people, Spirit of God. I mean, how hard can it be? You got the resources that you're the king of Israel. I'm sure these are armed people. Just go capture that guy and bring him back. We'll run him through and we'll be done with it. Well, by golly, three times the Spirit of God comes on and, and they're prophesying. Before I read the next verses, I want to go back to 1 Samuel 10 when Saul was anointed king. There was a public confirmation that Saul was king. And here it is, 1 Samuel 10, verse 10. When they came to the hill there, behold, a group of prophets met him, him being Saul. And the Spirit of God came upon him, him being Saul mightily, so they prophesied among them. It came about when all who knew him previously so they prophesied now with the prophets that the people said to one another, what has happened to the son of Kish? Something's going on with Saul. Is Saul also among the prophets? And this is the, the unveiling that Saul is your king. God poured out his spirit to say to the public, Saul's king. God's going to pour out his spirit again on Saul for a very different reason. Verses 23 and 24. He proceeded there to Naoth in Ramah. And the Spirit of God came upon him also, so that he went along prophesying continually until he came to Naoth and Ramah. He also stripped off his clothes, and he too prophesied before Samuel and lay down naked all day and all that night. Therefore, they say, is Saul also among the prophets? That's a very derisive term. Very different reason for the Spirit of God coming upon Saul this time is to say, Saul, I'm protecting my next king, David. And even though you have got the resources of the nation of Israel. You ain't going to get them. See, we, we started wrestling with this question. 
All of us live in circumstances that, that make us fearful. Without God, we'd be controlled by fear. Uh, why? We ask, why should we be confident in the midst of fear? Why should we be confident in the midst of fear? Here's the deal. God has unlimited resources to protect us. God has unlimited resources to protect us, to bring about his purposes in our circumstances. He used a son and daughter of the king who wanted to eliminate David. He poured out his spirit at strategic time. God has got the world at his beck to, to work in your and my fearful circumstances. Now, first service, two different people told me they, they read ahead in this chapter, which I'm great. I, I love that when you read ahead, and I, I think that's great. But they said, um, you know, Andy, towards the end here, um, you know, Saul gets naked. You're not going to act that out, are you? I said, no, I'm not. I'm not. Thanks for checking, but I'm not. That would be taking transparency to too high of a level. So what do we do with this? got a medical issue. I mean, the, the, the doctors come back and he, he said, cancer. Here's, what, here's where I'd mesh things. I, I would avail yourself of every medical resource. I, I'd see every, every uh, specialist you can. I'd talk to everybody you could about that. That's in the know. But I'd also keep in mind that God is your healer. God is the one that is ultimately in control of your, the thing that's causing you fear. I don't think this is a call to passivity, but it's a call to go forward, trusting ultimately that God is at work. You're underemployed. You're not employed. You need a job. I'd put my resume on Indeed. I'd put it on Monster. I'd put it, I'd put it wherever. You but I'd look to God as your provider, as the one who would ultimately meet your need for finances, meet your physical needs, and ultimately get you to the place where he wants you to be. But sometimes that, that process when we get in fearful things, it's, it's overwhelming and it's confusing and, and sometimes we don't act out, live out this faith. So I've had three pastoral job searches that is ultimately, there's a process that brought me here. And there was one we were going from what would take us to Colorado with my home church in Greeley to my first senior pastor in Sierra Vista, Arizona. And I had started the process and Oh, the year before we'd been in Chile and I had applied a little bit and took this job in my home church in Greeley. Um, so this is my second time. But, but in those days, there was no internet. So what you'd do is you'd, you'd send a cover letter in your resume to district superintendents for the different denominations. And then I, I would go, I went down, we were living in Greeley, Colorado at the time. I went down to Denver Seminary where I graduated from and they had a placement center. And you, you'd tell the person, I want you to send my resume here, 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 here. And then they'd send it up. So it's, I did that during the week and it's Saturday night. And I, I'm looking at those churches I, I picked out, and I realized, you know, one of these churches I applied to this week, they told me no a year ago. And, and I had, it was a hurried move back from Chile, and I had lost track. But I thought, this is humiliating. They told me no, and I sent another resume. So I called my wife into the room, and, and you're never supposed to speak in absolutes, but I said, I will never get it. I will never get a senior pastor job. I will never get a job because I have no experience. Never, never. And I said, let me tell you what happened. I just applied to a church that turned me down nine months ago. This, I, I am glad I will never meet those people. This is humiliating. It's in the south, southeast corner of Arizona. And, and I'm just, 
this is, this is horrible. This is, and so Sunday, church service, I said, if you'll go home with Chris, we just had the one child at the time, I'm just going to go out and process this. And I did, and I came back about 2.30, and she said, you will not believe who called. As honestly as I can tell you, the people from Sierra Vista, Arizona called. The one that side applied there, and this is humiliating, and I'm glad I'll never meet those people. They ended up hiring me. Wow, man, was it a great job? No, not, not really. It was okay. But there was a lot of conflict. We had different ideas of church. And let me say, you know, if I were to go back to town, every one of those men I could call and meet for lunch. We, we ended well. When I applied to the job at Lincoln Bremen, the chairman of the board served as a reference. And the guy who hired me there said he gave you a great, great reference. So it ended well. But at the time, there was, there was just different ideas of what church was supposed to be and, and things played out. And, and at one point, uh, when we went down there, our older son, Chris, was a year and a half old. And we were down there two and a half years. So at some point, he starts repeating everything he hears. And there's one couple we're talking about all the time. And Hope says, you know what? We better start speaking in code because Chris is going to go and he's going to repeat something at church that we don't want to hear. So we started referring to this couple as the Flintstones, and he was Fred, and she was Wilma. So if Chris went and said something, you know, they, they wouldn't know exactly who we're talking about. Now, I want you to know, and this, I can say this with complete integrity, in 17 years at North Point, none of you have ever gotten a code name. Isn't that great? <laughs> that is just great. But, you know, that was a... That was a fearful time. I had a kid, and then we had our second child down there, and, and, and how, are we gonna, how am I going to pay? And, how, and, and, and it was imperfect. It was flawed. Remember, I told him, well, I'll never get a job. Never get a job, I told her. Uh, we need this to be reminded that there is a God who is in control. And we can go, and we can crawl up in the bed and be in his presence and let him Shower us in his certainty and his sovereignty and letting it go. Now, we're in 1 Samuel 19. This chase of Saul of David is going to go through 1 Samuel 31. Scholars estimate anywhere between 10 and 13 years. Here's a question. Why didn't God just take Saul out like that? Let, let's just get on with it. David's going to be the king. And, and I don't know the mind of God, but my suspicion is David had lessons of faith to learn that he needed to get before he got in to be king. He took Israel to its heights. There's things he had to get. The only way he could get them is in experience. And we're going to see David did great and David failed miserably sometimes, kind of like I did on that first job. I'll never get a job. Failed miserably. Maybe you're in God's school of faith right now. And you're saying, you know, Andy, I know this and I'm struggling. Welcome to the club. Because we're growing. We ought to have this down. We're growing in it, in this certainty that we can crawl up in his arms and rest in him. I'm now, I've grown. I'm not where I need to be, but I'm, I'm, I'm not where I was. I, got, I, I hope you're in that process too. Something else to think about. David would take Israel to its heights, but that wasn't David's greatest act. It's his lineage. Because generation upon generation upon generation, he birthed the ultimate king. Jesus was the line of David. Maybe what God's doing in your life right now isn't about you. It's about your lineage. So what do we do? 
What do we do with that in this moment? I want to get to the end of Jesus' earthly ministry. He's resurrected from the dead. He's meeting with the disciples, and he's just told Peter, hey, it's not going to end well for you. You're going to end up being crucified. And, and Peter's got a question. Uh, Peter, seeing him, he's talking about John, the writer of the gospel, said to Jesus, and Lord, what about this man? John, what, about, what about John? Uh, and Jesus said, if I want him to reign until I come, what is that to you? You, you follow me. So let's not get distracted with all this, what's going around. Blah, blah, blah. Here's the call. You follow me. You draw close. Don't, 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 don't let all that stuff out there. You draw close to me. You get out of your bed and, and get in with me, the one you can trust. And you trust that whatever's happening, that I have got your circumstances under control and I'm working my purposes and plan. I have unlimited resources to do that. And because of that, we can have complete confidence in those times. How many of you have been on an airplane that's experienced a little bit of turbulence? Been in there? Okay, a lot of hands back there. So you're, you're, you're flying along and all of a sudden, oh, it drops. And you think, man, I hope they did their safety check on this thing. Hope the FAA was on top of this plane. It's a little, a little unnerving, right? But then you get a message over the intercom. Ladies and gentlemen, it's Captain Jones from the cockpit. We've experienced a little bit of turbulence here. And now we're going to take the plane up to uh, 32,000 feet to find some smoother air. Most of us like hearing that message, don't we? Why? Because we just heard from Captain Jones. He ain't surprised by this. He, he'd probably see that coming on radar. And he's got a plan for it. He's gonna, we're going to take it up to... 32,000 feet. So, okay, we can, we can relax in, in the turbulence. The turbulence hasn't changed, but Captain Jones has just announced he's got a thought for that. How much more with your circumstances? Is there God saying, yeah, I, I've seen that one coming. That's been on my radar for a while, and I've got a plan for it. Well, if we can hear that message, we can face our circumstances with confidence, knowing that God has unlimited resources to protect us. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, uh, we're grateful that you give us the example of a messy faith of stuff that isn't going great, of of people that are flawed, but you give us an example of also of a, a perfect God who has unlimited resources to protect his people, to bring about his purposes in their lives. Uh, Lord, we see this ultimately in Jesus, trusting you and calling us to, to follow him, to get in bed with him, to, to hear his message that this turbulent air is, is no thing for him. Lord, uh, we're in process and we're getting there. And, and would you be patient with us as you were with David um, that we might present to you a faith that is pleasing and pure. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.